We are Harvard Ventures, and this is The Bottom Line, a podcast about entrepreneurship, innovation, and everything in between. I'm Alex, and today we have a special guest, Flynn Coleman, in the Zoom studio. Flynn is an international human rights attorney, a social entrepreneur, a professor, an author, and an innovator. She is also a technology and human rights fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. In the past, she has worked with the United Nations, the United States federal government, and various international corporations, universities, and human rights organizations. Flynn wrote the book, A Human Algorithm, which is a compelling narrative about the importance of ethically designed artificial intelligence. So let's get to the bottom line. Before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, we would love to understand more about you and your personal journey. We know that you've worked as an international human rights attorney, a social justice advocate, professor, founder, um, and even fashion designer. So we'd love to hear about that and how you've gotten to where you are today in your career. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be with you all today. And yeah, just a you know, small question, the journey of how we've gotten here so far, and I'll try to um, kind of give you some of the salient points. But yes, I have of all of the adventures and things that I've had, I think that what has brought me to this point today has been this great opportunity to travel and to have conversations with people all around the world. I am, as you mentioned, an international human rights lawyer, and I think about the intersection of social justice and technology and how we're building a brighter world for our children and our children's children. And um, I was an athlete and I have played sports, specifically soccer, since I was young. And that that was actually one of the first ways that I started traveling around and connecting with people all around the world through playing soccer and then also through volunteering and having conversations with people. So really, whether it's places that I've lived or places that I've studied or thinking about this idea of human rights, for me, it all comes back to this idea built on of experiences and conversations with people um, in places where I'm not from and, and different than I am basically has kind of led me to this core belief that we're all equally and intrinsically valuable. We all have a voice that matters. We all have a story to tell. And it really is my great joy to take every opportunity to talk to people all around the world and figure out how can we be building a brighter world that where we all have opportunity and agencies and opportunities to build brighter futures on our own terms. And and so that to me has kind of been at the core of everything that I do and really core to that story of my life, which is how we're we building a brighter world for the next generation and how are we making good on these promises for freedom, equity, equality, and justice uh, for all people and all living things on this only one fragile planet that we call home. That's amazing. And it's really great hearing these really amazing pillars that you have. And as you've mentioned, um, you've lived in over a dozen countries, um, spoken to many different types of people, um, and worked with various different international corporations, companies, universities, and other organizations around the country and around the world. Is there an experience that really sticks out to you in terms of how you've developed your passions and ambitions and your desire to be involved in um, ethical design? There are so many and I'm just flooded with memories, even as you're asking that beautiful question. I'm just thinking about all the experiences and people that 
have helped me become and of course still becoming who I am and thinking about all of those. And I would say one that always comes to mind about is when I was living and studying abroad in Chile and I was doing work on commission there and doing work on truth commissions and how we heal as societies um, after eras of conflict and abuse uh, and mass trauma, crimes against humanity. And among all of the incredible work I got to do with the people there, one of the other things I did was I was playing on a soccer team. And uh, I have a history of playing on soccer teams all around the world. Many of them have been men's teams because um, when I was younger, especially, they actually didn't have women's teams in all the places that I were. So I was playing on a men's soccer team uh, amidst all the other things I was doing. And it was a wonderful experience for, for many reasons. And I joined the team. I had tried out and the team was really uh, welcoming, you know, in terms of having me on board. And then we went out for our first game on kind of a dirt patch of fields and we were playing on the other team and they kind of looked at me and said, okay, this is something we haven't seen before. And so we all lined up before the game, uh, my team on one side and the other team on the other side. And um, everyone shook hands except with me. Everyone kissed me on the cheek. And we played the game and the blood, the sweat, the tears. Uh, we ended up winning that game, actually, game with the team. And then we lined up uh, after those 90 minutes and everyone shook my hand. And I think of that story a lot. I think about uh, equity and equality and how sports can bring us together and kind of the power of just diving in and doing what we can to be an ambassador wherever we are, whatever we're doing. Uh, and so I think about that story a lot. <laughs> and I have a lot of fond memories uh, like that, but really just diving in and being involved wherever you are and really trying to kind of be an ambassador for equity and for justice and really figuring out more and more ways that we can be more and more inclusive. So I think about that story a lot. Yeah, it seems like there wasn't necessarily that level playing field in the beginning, but you certainly proved yourself throughout the course of the game. So that in itself is fantastic and inspiring to hear. Oh, thank you. That's so beautifully said. I, I think about that idea a lot as this idea of how are we leveling the playing field so that all of us have equal uh, opportunities and ways that we can contribute. And I think about that when I think about social justice and equity. So yes, beautifully said. Awesome. So jumping off of that point, a lot of your work has been about being a global citizen, um, ethical design, social impact, and social entrepreneurship. So we want to ask you this very open-ended question of what does the future of democracy and ethical leadership look like um, 20 years from now? How do you be an ethical leader and what are the action steps that you can take to achieve that ideal starting now and moving into the future? Thank you for that amazing question and also i also love how you've tied those threads together of course and we've talked about my book and my work and the things that you're doing but this idea and of course very much threaded through my work that uh it's all tied together and that working in different silos really prevents us from creating those kind of cross-pollinating ideas that will help all of us. And so breaking down the silos between democracy and leadership and technology, uh, venture capital, uh, artificial intelligence. And so I think that's so incredibly important. And some of the writing I'm doing now is like kind of right to that point. But in terms of the future of democracy and ethical leadership, I always say, and of course, it's part of my book and what I think about all the time. And also when we're talking about business, when we're talking about entrepreneurship, it's all about having the moral imagination 
determination and that moral courage to create systems led by ethical leadership. Everything goes back to having that moral compass and that mission and this idea of we're not just building things to disrupt. We are, we are here to create a framework for a better society for our children's children. And so in terms of the future of democracy, something I think about a lot, and of course others do too, we're really seeing so much of that laid bare right now uh, throughout the world, throughout the United States, of course, but throughout the world. And as you said, you know, I think about things in terms of a global community and we have so much to learn from each other. But the idea is that in a lot of ways, of course, I'm sure you're thinking about this all the time, as am I, democracy is very much under threat. We're seeing, um, for a lot of reasons, threats kind of bringing to the surface uh, autocrats, authoritarianism, dictatorial tendencies, the ability to have surveillance over mass groups of people, the ability to use propaganda to really manipulate people's fears, whether it's fears about the pandemic, whether it's fears about unemployment or what the future holds, people really grabbing on to that. So the future of democracy is, democracy is a practice. It's something we have to take care of. It's something that all of us as citizens and civic participants need to tenderly take care of and nurture and help grow. For me, ethical leadership is at the core of all of this. And of course, from my book, um, and of course, from the work that you do and the things that a lot of people are thinking about. There's so many things that we can't fix right now, but having diversity, radical inclusion, and representation is so critical to having more lived experiences in the room, at the table, to really face all of the horrors and problematic things that exist so that we can build brighter futures for the next generations and the generations that will be. So it's very much in danger, but people like you give me so much hope in the future. Individually, we can feel so small, um, and no one of us, one of the main tenets of my book is that no one of us has all the answers. So anyone that says they have all the answers or my platform is going to fix and connect everyone, it's already a red flag because individually we can't possibly have all those answers, but together there's really no star we can't dream of exploring. I think that the future of democracy, ethical and moral leadership are gonna be so, so critical. And we also see what happens when we have those failings. And when, we, when those failings are happening at level, we need to look to the local level to see how can we band together to create the things that we're not seeing from leadership. And then, of course, voting, being involved, figuring out how we can rise up together through movements, through protest, through coming together to say we need to build better systems and it's possible. So I believe that this idea of ethical leadership is absolutely essential to our future. It's very much in danger, but there are so many people all around the world fighting, advocating, and have been for all of these issues. So it's absolutely critical, but I believe there's a lot of hope. Yeah, I think that especially in the context of this, um, let's say turbulent political, economic, and social environment um, that exists in the United States, but also globally, um, your words just ring so true. And it, it's great to um, take those and be inspired and, and start to take these steps to pursue those um, ideals of ethical leadership and defend democracy. Um, so now I'm going to pass it off to Alex, who is going to chat about um, those same principles, but in terms of technology um, and AI. Great. Hi, Flynn. Alex here. One thing that we'd love to hear your thoughts about is the lack of diversity that pervades technological institutions. How has homogeneity specifically impacted the development of artificial intelligence? And what can we do to break that cycle in the future? 
Yes, indeed. Such an important question. And my book, and of course, there's a lot of other books too talking about this. And if you want to see the stats, again, you can dive into the entire chapter I write on that and just take a look. But the stats are glaring, horrifying, and deeply, deeply unsettling. So one of the things I talk about is this idea of homogeneity being so dangerous. And that's a lack of diversity, inclusion, and representation across racial lines, gender, socioeconomic status, um, ability, age, cognitive diversity. We're seeing so many things like, for example, that a lot of the people building these technological tools, AI, for example, come from like the same two schools let alone the lack of socioeconomic diversity, racial and gender diversity. So this is so critical. And one of the things I say about this, and that's why this, we're, we're so kind of, the world is really like pregnant with hope right now because people are talking about this and I'm hoping so much for actual action and change because people are starting to really see what a lot of people have been advocating for for many years. And what I always say is that there's so many things in our world we can't fix. But one of the things we can fix is more lived experiences in the room, more not just diversity, but creating spaces where people feel like they can be promoted and they can thrive and they can share their ideas. It's not just enough to throw people together or to have tokenism or to say, you know, you've done one workshop on something. And again, a start is a start. It's all part of a learning and an unlearning process. But it's so critically important to have more lived experiences in the room. And one example that I talk about that others do too is this idea of, you know, the faucets that are now kind of ubiquitous in the airports we used to go to when we were traveling, the uh, public faucets where you don't have to use the switch, you just put your hands under. And so when they were piling that project um, and the engineers that built it, it turns out that those faucets, touchless faucets, were only primed to pale skin. And it, so it doesn't necessarily always mean malicious intent, but it means there was no one with the lived experience in the room to say this does not work. It is not inclusive. Uh, one of my very best friends has cerebral palsy. Uh, she's in a wheelchair and she's a an international disability rights advocate. She does incredible work, but she talks about this idea of universal inclusion all the time and that people have different experiences and sometimes just the basic idea of having a ramp so that you can go to a coffee shop. These really simple things that you need to kind of shift your perspective for. And it turns that this isn't just a matter of having inclusion and representation, but building better teams builds better products and it makes for better companies. And it actually turns out that this idea of having this radical inclusion is much better for our economy and for our world at large. It's how we solve problems um, because if we only work from our lived experience, no matter how focused we are on doing good, I couldn't possibly know what your experience is. We couldn't possibly know until we say, I want to understand, I want to be better, I want to learn what problems you have. So this is how we build better products. And it's one of the things we can work on. So I'm really hopeful that this is something that we are really taking some more action on uh, in terms of saying that this is so critical to the future of who we are. It involves facing our past. It involves facing the horrible things that have happened, learning from history and saying we can do so much better and we simply must do better. And listening to each other is critical. And for technology, the technology we build is going to mirror its creator. So if you don't have engineers having training in ethics or inclusion, or you have siloed types of university systems or disciplines, we're not learning all the things we need to learn because it's not just about building the new shiny thing. It's about how can we build something that actually makes the world a better place. And I talked to so many programmers and coders. I had one coder come to my pals event, one of my book events. And he said, you know, I came to this event. I wanted to talk about some cool technology. And he's like, Flynn, and now I'm leaving in 
realized I can't just be a coder anymore. I got to be thinking inclusion and diversity and what my tools are actually being used for in the world. And it kind of takes facing that responsibility, that participation and that duty we all have, but it couldn't be more important. And it really needs to be intersectional. And we really need to be thinking about this idea of not just diversity, but representation and inclusion on these radical levels. And of course, as you saw from my book, I suggest that there is brilliance all around us, whether that's people different, from who we are, but also the environment, animals. We have so much to learn, all the different types of intelligence all around us. And historically, such a small segment of that intelligence has been valued above the rest. And we've got to move past that. I see. That's really interesting. I'm especially interested in the point you made about how the tech we build mimics its creators. How do you respond to critics that think humans, with our track record of interpersonal injustice, lack the innate capability to impart positive values to our own technology? Well, in a word, you have a point. <laughs> and there's a lot of proof and a lot of arguments that give a lot of credence to that. And one of the things I always say to that, and again, uh, chapter five of my book about all the horrible worst case scenario things that can, will, you know, and might happen from how we develop technology, that actually was my editor's favorite chapter. Um, so for fans of dystopia and the real life bias, discrimination and horrible things that are already here, it really is a real concerning question. Of course, right now we are seeing the threaded fabric that is torn, the open wounds of our society are truly being laid bare. One of the things I always say in terms of the pandemic, our healthcare system, educational child's there, the system actually didn't break. This is how it was designed to work only for certain people, period. This is actually how it was designed to work. So the other thing though I say is that um, as a genocide and war crimes attorney, I have of course seen the worst of humanity, crimes against humanity. I have dealt with situations and met with people that have truly been through the worst. But as a result of that, I've also seen the best of humanity, the courage, the resilience, the incredible bravery and strength of people that have overcome and survived and thrived and have now are building a brighter world. I see this with conversations with my friends, colleagues all around the world. So that all comes together. And so for me, hope is a rebellion in these troubled times. And I say we can't afford not to be not to be hopeful because yeah, there's a lot of things that have and are happening that are so devastating and heartbreaking and horrifying. But first of all, they're not unprecedented. A lot of these things we should have seen coming. But whatever happens, don't we want to go down swinging? Don't we want to try for social justice and for a brighter world? We owe it to the next generations to try no matter what happens. So there's a lot of reasons to be so distraught, but we need to use that and channel that and learn from others that have overcome to say, okay, this is burning down. This is not working. But when we dismantle this, something new and more beautiful can rise up in its place, but we have to work together to make that happen. So yes, be you know, really face all the horrible things that can happen because I think that is ultimately where the actual hope springs. It's out of the ashes of all the things that we need to change. And I hope that we can use this crossroads and opportunity to do that. I really, I don't know what's going to happen because there's so many reasons to be upset. And I'm sure you and me and everyone else is just feeling a whole roller coaster of emotions. Sometimes maybe we're hopeful, sometimes we're distraught. And every day, especially right now, is bringing new news and new things to think about. And in another answer to your question, and apropos work I'm doing right now, there it is true that our small human brains and our small human experience 
experience can't fully fathom and understand what is going on. But I actually think that accepting that is the first step to realizing what can we do with the you know, tiny specks of dust that we are? And what can we do with that time that we have, however imperfect, however messy, uh, to really embrace that vulnerability and those weaknesses and build something beautiful out of it? That's a thoughtful and I think surprisingly optimistic note in terms of how much opportunity can come from what to us sounds like severe limitations in terms of the human experience. You also mentioned that you have worked as a human rights attorney and activist in the past. How do you see artificial intelligence being applied to those fields in just and equitable ways? Yeah, indeed. So one of the reasons I wrote a human algorithm was that I wanted to bring that human and human rights perspective to this work because traditionally the technology, specifically AI, has been so siloed off that one of the most common things I hear from people is, oh, you know, I love your work, but I could never understand this book. It would be over my head. And I always say, if you don't not just learn something, but walk away from my book empowered and inspired and realizing you have a voice in the future and you can make a difference, then I haven't done my job. And that's part of why I did this, because that is so much built in to like the mantra and the preconceived notions about, okay, we're going to build this, just trust us. We're the ones that know how to build these technologies and we're going to do it in a way that benefits all of us. And that has been, you know, through, um, through what's happening in our recent kind of, you know, giant building up of tech platforms that has happened. And even putting malicious, you know, intent aside, that is incredibly dangerous because AI, first of all, is no one thing. It's technology that's going to touch every sector, every part of our our lives in different ways and we should all have a voice in the future we can all understand this and it's going to take all of us from all different industries to figure this out so so much of why i wrote the book was to bring that human perspective bringing people into the tent to say we all have a voice and we all have brilliant ideas and this is going to touch every part of it so one of the things as you know i suggest in the book is this idea of building things like empathy and ideas around human rights and social justice into the technology and of course through the people that are creating and designing and building these tools. This is absolutely essential because as you, you know, as we and as you the technology is mirroring who we are. So for me, AI is a mirror for humanity and for society. It's a very ancient idea, this idea of um, who we are as human beings, you know, and what is our potential. And of course, starting with Alan Turing and even before, people were thinking about this idea of thinking machines. The difference is now we have a lot of the tools to actually build the technology, which is why this has become kind of a hot buzzword, but it's still very much in its early stages. And there's a lot of people suggesting a lot of different ways that it could go. We don't know the answers, but what I know for sure is there's not enough people in the room that are there weighing in on the technology that is going to change every facet of our lives. So again, there's a lot of things we can't fix and a lot of things we can't predict, but we can create a better atmosphere so we have a better chance of getting it right. Because when you're talking about tools and technologies that are potentially smarter than we are or could ever be, there is a crossroads beyond which we are building the tool and then the tool is smarter than we are. So we really want to try to get that right uh, because that is the power of these tools. And also, as of course you know, the technology is becoming smarter on an exponential scale. So we saw the idea of exponentiality is, is incredibly important for pandemics as well. We had about 40 years to assimilate 
relate to the tools we are building for the industrial revolution, the steam engine and such. But we're not going to have nearly as much time to assimilate to the changes brought on by these tools. And the pandemic is a perfect example of all of these digital tools being thrust upon us. And we're suddenly kind of forced into this brave new world. And we feel so unprepared because we are. And also because people have told us that we shouldn't have a seat at the table. And I'm here to tell you that we all do. And for hope for the future, we need to be creating a much more inclusive atmosphere so we can have those debates, what David White calls courageous conversations about the future that's going to affect us all. I couldn't agree more. I really like your point about how we're building human-like machines, so the end product will almost feel like we're holding up a mirror to ourselves. That kind of self-reflection will force us to look into our flaws in addition to our positive traits to determine how those traits will be fundamentally ingrained in the machines that we build. I really appreciate your thoughts regarding these topics, and now I'll pass it off to Georgia, who I know has some thought-provoking questions planned. I'm Georgia. Thank you so much for being here. This has been a fantastic conversation so far. I love what you say about the importance of shaping a future ethically and with meaning. Now, especially for college students in this digital age of learning, what advice do you have for students looking to find their purpose in the world of social entrepreneurship and activism? Indeed. So hello to all the college students out there. I wish you could be meeting in person. I'm thinking of all of you in this difficult time, and I know you're going through a lot. As I was saying to uh, the lovely host of this incredible show, hang in there, have hope you will get through this, and you will find ways to turn all of this into silver linings and opportunities to solve problems and to move forward. And students are some of my absolute favorite people to talk to. I love my students, and while I love you know, to hear that I've taught them something, the truth is, is you and they inspire me endlessly, and the ideas that are brought to class and to podcasts like this are just endless and endlessly inspiring to me because you give me such hope and your ideas and your questions and your voice it's so valid you have to remember that your voice matters your questions are important and to keep going and to keep being curious and to keep pressing about how we can build new things and to really really keep that curiosity and that creativity because you are the future and you give me so much hope and so to you there's so many things I would say, but in terms of finding your purpose, I think that I believe in this idea of purpose and passion, but I do think in some ways it's gotten a bit, you know, convoluted and the messaging has become, you know, you're seeing someone who's 20 and who's built a corporation. So if you're not doing that, that means you're not on a certain path or, or, or the myth that you maybe have should have found your purpose already. You might spend, you will, if you're lucky, spend your whole life being curious and taking twists and turns you never would have thought of. I've talked to so many entrepreneurs, for example, all around the world, and everyone has a different story, but inevitably, it's never a straight line from point A to point B. And when you get lost along the way, that's actually where the magic happens. When I teach classes in storytelling, what I always say, you know, is act one, when you set off on the journey, you know, everyone knows about that part. And then act three, when you come back and you find the answer, those are, you know, exciting parts, but actually the most exciting part of your story is act two, the transition, the messy middle part where you really don't know what you're doing. And so purpose comes in many forms. Also, you might need a job to pay the rent. Maybe you're taking care of someone in your family. Maybe you have certain obligations and there's so much power and validity in that. And that is really incredibly important to be taking care of your own needs. And maybe what you're doing isn't making you any money. 
and that's okay. Or maybe you don't need to start a new thing, but you just need to connect with a friend or someone you know or someone you don't know uh, and find someone who's also passionate about what you're doing. Or maybe you haven't found that at all yet. The thing I want to say, the thread is that there's no one way to make a difference. Your only job in this world is to be who you are. Because if you don't use your voice, no one will. That is your strength. That is your power, your voice, your dreams, your, your way of being. No one else can do that but you. And that is really your only job. And it's so difficult, especially in the age of social media and so many things going on and so much information coming at us. It's a deluge every day now more than ever. It's really hard to find your own voice in the crowd. But that is your job, is to find your voice in the crowd and to see in those quiet moments, can you hear what your own voice and soul is telling you? And that's what it is. There is no, you know, especially now with technology and tools and all these different avenues that we have, you don't have to necessarily take a whole year and volunteer with one organization. That's not the only way to make a difference. You can spend five minutes, for example, during the pandemic, um, having a phone call with a senior. And the senior living home and you might find that is your way of giving back or you might really love gardening or cooking or building AI and out of that can spring an entire new purpose that you wouldn't have thought of. So your goal is to hear your own voice in the crowd and I think that purpose is so incredibly important but remember to keep your eye on your own prize and to try as difficult as it is not to compare yourself to others. Shakespeare has said it, others have said it, but comparison is the thief of joy and recognize how difficult that is, especially now when you're seeing what classmates have done or other people on social media. But your voice matters so much and we want to hear it. The world wants to hear what you have to say. And that can mean so many different things. There's no one way to make a difference in your way. And I can't wait to see what you do and please be in touch letting me know uh, as you go on this path because I personally am rooting you on every step of the way. That's amazing, Flynn. And as a college student myself, definitely advice that I'm going to be taking to heart and I hope all of our listeners do as well. We'll also be linking in the description to this episode all of Flynn's info, her book, her socials, etc. so that anyone listening can go on to learn more and connect. So to close out our interview, we love to ask our final question, which is, what is your hottest take? Yes, thank you for that closing question. We've hinted at it a few times, uh, but I'd say one hot take that I have uh, that's important to me is, and it is a radical part of my book and the way I think, but I hope it won't always be the case, that actually as we think about building the tools of the future and the world of the future, there is so much focus on the incredible brilliance of the human mind. And it truly is a complex, brilliant, incredible part of this world. But I also suggest that there's so much brilliance all around us. And what would happen if we moved away from a human-centered view of the universe and made room for the incredible things we can learn from the octopus or from pigeons who can solve problems and detect cancer and image scans or wasps or bees or elephants or trees with these incredible communication systems through their root systems. Even slime mold can hold all of these incredible puzzle pieces to how we create the cities and transport systems of the future. And what I want to say about that is we don't have to be exceptional and the only ones that are brilliant to be incredibly powerful and important. And if we step away from having to be the center of all things, and if we move the people and the other living things that have been marginalized towards the center, there is room for all of us to thrive. And that is how our world and all of its inhabitants 
and living things are going to thrive. And it's so important to move past exceptionalism and otherism. We don't need to be the same to be equally worthy and valuable just as we are. And if we can move past that and move past other exceptionalism, we can move towards a place where we can work together to create our only fragile home mirrored to more of us and mirrored in a more inclusive way that really kind of galvanizes that whole prism of who we are as a society and making more room in that crucible of humanity for more living things will benefit all of us. And that is my hot take that I want to um, expand upon everyone because I think it's so critical for our future um, and it will allow all of us not just to survive but to thrive in our brave new world. And that's the bottom line. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to stay tuned for future episodes and check us out online at harvardventures.org. If you're a company or individual interested in working with us, you can reach us at hello at harvardventures.org. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at harvard underscore ventures. Tune in next week for another episode of The Bottom Line.